Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. All right, get out your Bibles. John chapter 2 this morning. We're moving right along. If you haven't got a Bible with you, there's one in the pew right there beside you. And we're reading from the CSB version, as the pastor requested. And I didn't have a Bible of that version, so I have to use my, my phone here. So John chapter 2, read verses 1 through 12. And the title on this one says, The First Sign Turning Water into Wine. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Well, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Well, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. So now there were six stone water jars had been set there for the Jewish purification, spit it out, and each contained 20 to 30 gallons. Well, fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And they said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. Well, when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. He called the groom and he told them, everyone sets out the fine wine first. (laughs) Then after the people are drunk, the inferior but you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Canaan of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And then after this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, brother. Me again. Yeah. Guys, it took us seven weeks to get through John chapter one. But that is not indicative of what the rest of this is going to look like. Uh, we're going to start picking up because we're getting into more narratives. And so those are a bit chunkier. They, they cover a bit more text. So you should already be in John chapter two. Um, and, and we're going to pick up the pace. Now, uh, today's, um, let me just kind of tell you where we are in the gospel of John. Today's text actually introduces the next three chapters, chapter two, three, and four, in a way with a specific theme in mind, and that is this theme. Say it with me. The old has gone, the new has come. So you're going to hear that over the next several weeks, whenever we're, especially starting today, we're talking about the old purifications with the new wine. In a few weeks, we're going to also talk about the old temple replaced with the new temple. We're going to talk about the old covenant with the new birth. We're going to talk about the old water of Jacob's well with the new living water in Jesus. We're going to talk about the old worship in Jerusalem, and we're going to talk about the new worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, Jesus is here to take out the old and bring in the new. And so that's what we're going to be looking at, and particularly today in John chapter 2. And I'm just going to put this out there, and I'm not, I don't have expectations for this. This was several weeks ago. How many of you can kind of remember why we're in this series? What was the first Sunday in this about? We're in Hebrews, and, 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 and what, why, why are we here in the Gospel of John? We, 
we talked about the fact that Jesus is the image of God, right? And what do we have a problem with? Distorting images. We as human beings have the potential to carry images of others and ourselves that are distortions. In fact, most sin is revolving around distorting images of others or ourselves. Right? So, so we have a potential to carry an image of Jesus that isn't the actual Jesus. Right? And, and so that's why we're here. That's why we're in the Gospel of John. Because we want God's word to form and shape and mold the very image that we're carrying of our Lord and Savior. That makes sense? Are you tracking with me there? I hope so. Nobody agreed. Dave, take his advice. Take Dave's advice. Are you, are you tracking with me? Yes, thank you. I will say that today's passage is one of those passages that reshaped and reworked some of my views on who Jesus is and what he cares about and what he says. This is one of those passages that shaped and formed some of my image of Jesus, some of my understanding of Jesus. So let me explain. Uh, I grew up in a church uh, that the Lord used to to preach the gospel to my soul, and and I was brought to Christ in that church. I uh, was called into ministry in that church, so I praise God for the ministry of that church. But uh, it was the kind of environment, denominationally, where, uh, let me just give you an example. If a pastor was officiating a wedding and the pastor knew that there was going to be alcohol served at the reception, he would attend the ceremony and then leave. Because if he were to go to the reception, he would be around alcohol. And he would be around people who were drinking it. They weren't going to be seen in a place where alcohol was being consumed because, you know, it gave them the appearance of evil. That's what they would say, what they would believe. Some of you are already uncomfortable because you're like, he's talking about alcohol already. Man, we're only five minutes in. No. Here's the thing. These, this environment that I grew up in, they kind of created and encouraged these unnaturally religious rules to maintain an appearance of righteous living. So, so one rule was, was that alcohol, it's a wicked liquid. Just a wicked liquid. It's evil. It leads to all sorts of debauchery, right? If, you're gonna, if you drink one sip, you're alcoholic. They might not have exactly said that, but that's the impression that I had growing up. Not only that, but I also was of the understanding that that environment, they created a rule that if you're around anybody who's drinking alcohol, my goodness, ooh, you're, 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 you're going to be sinning. You're not going to be blameless. Guys, already, we see Jesus, he's not holding to those rules. He's not. Jesus is here at this wedding that we've heard, we've heard read. He's at this wedding and Alcohol is being consumed there and it's being enjoyed there. Some people are even getting drunk there. Verse 10 says that. And by the way, just so you know, all the commentators and scholars agree on this, that you can't twist this passage and and work it and argue in a way where they're simply knocking down Welch's finest year 03, of grape juice, 
You can't do that with this text just to fit your ethical dilemma. But not only do we see him do so, like he, he's not only at this wedding where all of that's happening, he's, he's also, as the creator, turning water into what? Wine. He's taking water and turning it into wine. Well, you and I both agree with the counsel of Scripture that God doesn't create or do anything that's evil or wicked, right? And yet, here he is making, making wine. So either wine isn't an evil substance, or Jesus wasn't God. But we believe Jesus is God, right? So, so then, then alcohol isn't necessarily a wicked thing if Jesus makes it. So here's Jesus in this passage. He's being invited into weddings and he's going to them and, and he's around these people who, who are just, they're, they're, they're getting a little tipsy. They're getting a little drunk. And that, yes, yes, alcoholism, drunkenness, it's condemned by scripture. It's wrong. You're not in control of your faculties. Alcohol is. No, you're not supposed to be drunk with wine. You're supposed to be drunk with the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians says. Wow, I'm losing my breath. But guys, Look at Jesus. He's like, he's this joyful person who's going to parties. He's liked by people. He's a friend of sinners. Sinners who are are taking a good gift and using it in a wrong way. He isn't unnaturally religious and he doesn't create these rules per se for this appearance of holiness that he himself doesn't actually command. Guys, keep on reading. We're going to get to places in this gospel where Jesus shows up in some pretty sketchy places with some pretty sketchy people. How do we reconcile that with the Jesus who, oh, I can't be around, oh, put myself in a bubble wrap and I'm going to stay away from the world. We, We can't. We see him show up in these places with scandalous people, all of which the religious elite said were not worthy of time. They weren't worth their time. Guys, we we haven't been called to be unnaturally religious. We're here to live life in such a way where we're overflowing with joy and love and care and compassion and fun so that everyone around us would just be like baffled, man, You just lost all your stuff. Wait, you're still blessing the Lord? You still got joy in you? I gotta know what's going on. That's that's, that's the nature of our life with Christ. So so that kind of sets up why this text was so formative for me in a way that probably wasn't as formal formative for, for you guys when you read it because I came out of a certain background. But, but all that to say, I have no problem or no hesitation with saying that the name of this message this morning is called The Better Wine. The Better Wine. Now here's the thing. To make this morning all about alcohol totally misses what this text is about. So I'm not going to spend any more time on that. But also... We're not here to look at good old Mother Mary. Nor are we to hear to see the obedience of the servants who listened to Jesus and did what he said. We're here to see Jesus. We're here to look at Jesus. This passage is all about Jesus. Look at verse 11 again. 
So Jesus did this, the first of his signs. There are seven signs that John records in his gospel. The first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. He revealed his glory. He's revealing his character. This sign is meant to expose Christ. It's meant to glorify Christ, to let his name be lifted higher. Okay, so that makes sense. So we're here to see Jesus. And what glory is it that he's revealing? Well, I'm going to say something that you might remember. He's revealing the beautiful perfections of his sovereign character. You probably heard that two years ago, maybe, when we were in the glory, a glimpse of glory. And what we see is that his glory is expressed in three main ways. So if you want to outline your notes this morning, if you are taking notes, you can, you can outline it in three main ways. He, Jesus is revealing that he is first the obedient son. Second, Jesus is the ultimate purifier. The ultimate purifier. And then third, Jesus is the all-providing bridegroom. So we've got the obedient son, we've got the ultimate purifier, and then we've got the all-providing bridegroom. So, so let me first set up a little bit more with this wedding than we might know. Because when we think of weddings, what do we think of? We think of a 20-minute a service held right here with maybe a two-hour party and then you're gone. Right? Woohoo! Wedding! All right, go. No, this, this, the, the, the weddings in Jewish culture were very different. Because when they thought about the coming of Christ... When they thought about the return of the Messiah, they thought of weddings because it was the bridegroom coming for the bride, Israel, right? So they thought about weddings. And so, so if that's the case, then they're going to make weddings a really, really big deal. They're going to party. They're going to celebrate. Guys, the wed- here's how it would work. The wedding would be announced, right? Friends, family would all come in. Preparations would be made. And they would all gather at the groom's house. And the groom would start to celebrate with his friends and his family. And he would would lead this processional of all his friends and family. And he'd go to his bride's house. And he'd get her. And he'd bring her to his. And they would celebrate. And they would be wed. And in that moment, the, the, the ceremony would happen. They would exchange their covenants And their celebration would last potentially up to a week. So imagine if you got a wedding invite and it said, starting Friday, ending on Tuesday. (laughs) So you got to be here the whole time. I'm like, I can't take off work for that long. It's just a wedding. No, they would do this almost all week. And boy, would they feast. They had good wine. They would drink all week long. They great food. They would celebrate. They would dance. Late into the night, they'd, they'd go to sleep. They'd wake up the next day. Repeat. Each day was a whole new celebration. Celebrating this new wedding. This new marriage. With, with more wine on the next day. Probably not as good that day because the good wine's at first. And then, and then more food and more singing and more merriment and more dancing and words of encouragement and prayer and then repeat the next day. And Jesus goes to that. Jesus goes to this wedding. And they're here and they're celebrating. They're enjoying food and drink. And then something happens. What, is, what, is, what, what does the mama say? What, what happens? What happens? 
The, ri- the wine runs out. Oh, boy. The wine runs out. I just, I don't know why. Every time I read that, I picture like Jack Sparrow stumbling out. Why is the rum gone? Just every time. Guys, it is the responsibility of the bridegroom to make provisions, to hawk up the money in order to pay for the wedding. Especially, now some of you, some of you have daughters, you're like, why can't that still be? Because now the daughter's parents pay for it, right? That's, oh man, I've got two daughters. Oh, I, Colvin, sorry, you've got four. <laughs> but you better have already started investing in that, right? So the bridegroom was responsible to make sure that the whole week, the whole celebration had all the provisions needed. And to run out of wine was considered an absolutely dreadful embarrassment for him. Because how would they, doesn't that reflect on the way he provide for his wife? His new wife? So, so, so Mary, who's possibly related to this bridegroom in some way, maybe, decides to just bring it up to Jesus. She sees the concern, the, the worry, and she comes to Jesus and she says to him, the wine's run out. And, and Jesus responds in a pretty unusual way. He's pretty unusual. He, he, Mom, I'm 30 years old. Stop telling me what to do. You're embarrassing me in front of my friends, right? Is that what he says? No, no, look at what he says, verse 4. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, he said, my hour has not yet come. Add some sugar into this all you want. Try to make it as sweet and nice as you want. This isn't necessarily a usual way or a nice way to talk to your mama. Am I wrong? I know if Gwendolyn Faye Moore Brud, my mother, were to ever hear me say to, woman... I would not be able to sit for three whole weeks. But Jesus says to his mom, woman, what does this have to do with me? What is this concern of yours to do with me? You see, Mary comes with this expectation that that Jesus was going to fix the problem, right? But Jesus, in a way... Commentaries agree it's a subtle rebuke because Mary's not his authority anymore. Moms, you you know how hard that can be, right? When your kids grow up to a certain age, you transition out of authority and into the position of friend. My mom's enjoying that, but I'm sure there's sometimes she wishes she was still my authority. Mom, I love you. I don't even know if you're listening. He's affirming to her, listen, it's not your place to be calling out my powers. It's, it's, it's my heavenly Father who is my authority over my timing as to when I reveal my glory, as to when I act over my life and over my death. You are not my authority anymore, woman. He doesn't say mom, he says woman. So this is like this massive declaration of who the ultimate authority over Jesus really is and it's not Mama Mary. So I would just caution you, though, if you've already started typing up like a text message to your mom and it starts off with, woman, you're not my authority anymore, you need to lay, go ahead and just delete that because you're not the word come in flesh, the son of God who created all things. 
okay? Don't do it. And, and, and moms, if your son or daughter comes to you and calls you woman, don't blame me. Just, they, you can tell them, you're following Jesus' example. Just kidding. But here's what we see in Jesus' example here. When we surrender our lives over to God, there's this massive shift in our horizontal relationships. No matter, no matter how important those relationships and no matter how valuable those relationships are, there's this massive shift that happens to where they are not our ultimate authority. They're not our ultimate authority anymore. My wife is not my ultimate authority. I'm not even my ultimate authority anymore. God becomes our commanding officer. God becomes our commanding authority when we surrender our lives to him and his mission. And Jesus is communicating that to, hear, to his mama, to his mother. And, 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 and yet, what does he still do? Does he just walk off from the wedding? Nah, I'm done. No, he does what? He makes wine. He still makes the wine. He still goes on to serve the need. Why? Because God delights when his children serve others. God's will for his son is to serve the needs of others. That that Jesus would be a servant. Which is where we get to really the first point of what we were talking about this morning. That Jesus is declaring to us. He's revealing part of his glory. saying, I am the obedient son. I am, and now you thought, it's not to Mother Mary, right? It's not to Mom Mary. It's, it's to the Father. It's to His Heavenly Father. Jesus is revealing here His submission to God. Because Mary didn't call out His power, the Father did. Jesus obediently, trustingly, listens to His Dad in Heaven. All the way to the point where He's willing to go to the cross and lay down His life on our behalf, in our place, To drink the cup of God's wrath for our sin. Jesus obediently trusts his father. And that's Jesus' desire for anyone and everyone who would just receive him. For anyone and everyone who would come to him to obey his father in heaven. Especially when it comes to serving others. Guys, Jesus himself set the example that that it is better to serve than to be served. Right? He, he says that it's, he didn't even come to be served. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So for us to follow Jesus automatically means that we're agreeing that we are going to be obedient sons and daughters of God. It means that that's part of this. We ought to serve those around us because Jesus did the same. And so, so when we see Jesus go and serve, we follow in his footsteps. So for example, oh, wait, wait, you, you have that big project going on in your house? Yeah, I know I'm really busy. Let me serve him, okay? Yeah, I'll come, come on. Or, or hey, 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 you're, you're sick, you're, you're in the hospital? Hey, what do you need? What can, I, what can I give to you? Do you need, I can go home and cut your grass for you if, if, if that's what you need. My goodness, This is why Mary's last words in this text are so important and bear such a huge significance than what we might give them. She wasn't just talking to the servants when she said this. She was speaking to us. This is where we take her counsel. She says to them, do whatever he tells you. Brothers and sisters, do whatever our Jesus tells you. 
You've heard this for the thousandth time, and I'm going to keep saying it again and again and again. When Jesus says, do this and don't do that, he's not creating a list of moral obligations. He's actually saying, hey, come on, you want to find out what real life is like, what abundant life is? Just this way. Don't do this. Do that. Watch out for this. Just keep coming. This is this way to life. It's what he's doing the whole time. He's not robbing you of joy. He's leading you into it. So we joyfully obey and follow. So we do whatever he tells us. And I'm telling you, it will taste like the better wine. So let's keep plugging along. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, what comes into the picture? We see six stone water jars. Stone water jars that could hold a potentially 100 to 150 gallons of water. And that water was set aside for purification. For washing of purification. So the old law or the old covenant dealt in terms of those who were clean and those who were uncleaning. In other words, those who were fit to be in God's presence and those who weren't. So any moral blemish or any physical blemish would make you unclean. And therefore, you'd have to be purified. You'd have to be washed, ceremonially cleansed to be clean again. So these jars held the waters for bathing in, for purification, to be made clean. And yet Jesus takes that water those jars, and turns their content, which was meant for purification, he turns it into new wine. Did you catch that? He takes the old covenant's purification waters and he turns it into wine. Now, I don't know about you, have you ever heard any kind of health doctors recommend anything like a wine bath? No, I don't know. I just get all sticky and gross. I don't even know what wine's like. It's weird. But, but to take a bath in wine, so, so is Jesus saying, hey, try this now. Try washing in the wine. No. What's wine for? Celebration. It's for celebration. In the act of transforming this purification water, Jesus replaces the old model of cleansing the unclean, and is ultimately declaring, no, I'm the one who can make you clean. In the hour that my death comes, I will wash you in my blood. So come, drink, I've finished the work for you. And this is where we get to the second part of Jesus' character, of his glory that's being shown here. Guys, you and I, if, if you've read anything about Jesus' ministry, you know that there were often times where Jesus was bucking up against the established order, against the religious elite in the day, and those religious elite believed that morally outward cleanliness, outward, moral cleanliness on the outward behaviors and, and appearances was more important than the inner transformation I mean, you guys know that Jesus once called these sort of religious elite, he called them whitewashed tombs. Which means on the outside, oh man, they were all so clean and pretty. They got the latest paint shade on them. But inside you open it up and they're full of death. They reek 
of death. But no, Jesus... Jesus takes away the old purification, which meant to to wash outwardly, and instead he transforms the very chemical makeup, the very nature of the water, and turns it into wine, into a drink that's meant for celebration. Why? Because the work required for true inward transformation is only and always completely accomplished by Jesus. Only he can do it. So, so what Jesus is shouting in this text about himself is that he's, he's the ultimate purifier. He's the one who actually makes us clean. So this means that the Christian life isn't spent trying to get to God or to approach God with our works and with our efforts and cleaning up ourselves on the outside. No, no, no. The Christian life is one of sitting down at the table where Jesus is inviting us to come and celebrate the work that he's accomplished. Guys, isn't isn't this gospel so much better It's so much better. The gospel that Jesus Christ brings into the world is so much better. That's what the master of the ceremony said. Right? In a roundabout way. It's exactly what he said. Do you remember? Look at the verse. Verse 10. Verse 9 and 10. This this he's handed the glass of wine. He smells it. He tastes it. And he's astounded at it. He's amazed. He's like, whoa, 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 hold on, okay, okay. Hey, groom, come here, come here, wait, wait. Usually people don't go this route. Usually you set out the really good stuff at first when people actually can tell what it tastes like and then when they are kind of can't handle their drink, you, you bring out the bad stuff. What are you doing? Why, why are you going this way? It's so much better. It's more excellent. Guys, this, this gospel is so much better. So no longer is the pathway to God through ceremonial cleansing and sacrifice. It's the finished work of Jesus. So, so, so instead of us working so hard to make ourselves clean through external appearances and, and behavior management and modification and emotion suppression, right? We can, we can come to Jesus and, and by faith in his death and resurrection have every sin and every blemish and every stain washed inwardly and outwardly by his blood. And all he's doing is just inviting us to dine with him and celebrate his finished work on the cross. So I can't help but imagine that there are some of us in here who have still been trying to wash in the waters of purification. Working so hard to maintain an appearance of moral goodness to those around you. And claiming that you're clean, claiming that you're good. Oh, no, no, no. I don't do this like those people do. Nope, nope, I don't do that. Nope, and I, and I do this five times a day. Yep, and I, and I avoid these things. Yeah, and I don't listen to this stuff. I listen to that stuff. When you get to the end of all that you've worked so hard to maintain and preserve with your own efforts, and that old, bitter, 
unsatisfying, insufficient wine runs out, Jesus is going to be standing there at the end of the line saying, what I've got is better. Quit trying to be something that you're not. I've got to remake you. So just come, and I'll do the work. I'll transform you. Come and celebrate and rest in my goodness. Come and drink. Because he alone is the ultimate purifier. Nothing else can clean you up like he can. And so that's why we celebrate. It's rather appropriate then that we're taking communion at the end of our gathering today, isn't it? Now there's one last part. I can't help but see it. There's one last part to this and I want you to bear with me because uh, we're talking about a wedding so you'd think that at some point there'd be some marriage counsel in this, right? So it's coming. So be paying attention, okay? Here's, here's what I couldn't help but observe from the silence. I need you to remember for me whose responsibility was it to pay and to hawk up all the money to provide the provisions for the whole ceremony? Whose responsibility? The grooms, the bridegrooms, the husband, the future husband. And the master of the feast, who's like the head waiter or the caterer almost, right? He tastes the new wine and, and goodness, he's amazed with the taste. Oh, it's good. And he calls in the bridegroom and he's shocked because the bridegroom brought out the, the better wine long after is normal. And that's where the story ends. John, the apostle, the author of this gospel, comes in with some narration in verse 11, saying, like, this is the sign. He revealed God's glory. His disciples believed. But I can't help but go back and, like, wait, 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 wait. Did the bridegroom really keep the good wine until now? What's the answer? No. No, he, he didn't keep the good wine until now. What'd he do? He failed. He failed to provide enough. For his bride, for his guests, he failed miserably. Now in a culture of shame, that would be devastating. But here's here's what I'm getting at. When I work with couples in premarital and even marital counseling, even when I'm at the ceremony officiating their wedding and and they're doing their I do's, there's one thing that I'm trying to make sure that they get across, that they understand deep within them. And that's this single point. Your spouse is never enough. Your spouse is never going to be enough. Your husband is not going to be all that you need. He can't live under that pressure. Your wife, mm -mm. she's not going to be able to give your heart all that your heart wants and needs. Your spouse will fail you. They will hurt you. They won't be able to perfectly provide and protect for you. Things will run out. Not only that, 
But if you're single and you're not married right now, and, and, and you think that there's going to come a day where, where your, 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 your bride or your groom-to-be comes riding in on a white horse and the light's shining behind them and then they, they satisfy every longing of your heart. If, you, if you're thinking that way, that you're waiting for that day when my life will be sufficient when that boy or girl shows up, then my goodness, you are in for a huge letdown because they're going to be crushed under the weight of your expectations. Guys, I'm going to say it again. All husbands fail to be what our wives need. Wives, can I get an amen? I didn't think so. Good. You you held that off because you know. Guys, husbands, your wives will fail to be all that you need them to be. And it's okay. They weren't designed to be. They weren't made to be everything that your heart needs. Or to fulfill it. Or to satisfy it. That's not how God designed marriage. We think of marriage in our context of soulmates. Where I'm missing a part of me. And until I find that other human being that has it. I'm going to be incomplete. Now, this sounds like I'm against love. No, I'm, I'm totally for marriage. I'm a big fan of it. I am madly in love with my wife, and she has my whole heart. But I don't trust her to be everything that only Jesus can be. But I do trust her. So don't, don't, don't miss this. Our spouses weren't designed to be everything our hearts need them to be. Okay? But who does this passage say is enough to make up for every way that you and I lack? It's Jesus. He doesn't fail this marriage. He makes up for the lack. He does measure up. And that's why I think really from the silence we hear Jesus shouting, hey, I am the all-providing bridegroom. Quietly, omnipotently, Jesus is playing the role of the perfect, all-providing bridegroom. Out of the water comes the wine that verse 7 says was so abundant that it was brimming over the top of these jars. In verse 10, the, the wedding feast master says that this wine is so much better than what the husband had provided. <laughs> right? Jesus provides for our souls what all we need in our souls. Our spouses weren't designed for that. They weren't made that, that way. No, Jesus, he's the one who, he comes from heaven in pursuit of you, in pursuit of his bride. He endures the cross for his bride. He laid down his life on behalf of his bride. He went to the grave to rescue his bride. He raised from the dead to reign with his bride. He sent his spirit to comfort and help and to sanctify his bride. And one day, he's going to peel back the sky and he's coming back for his bride forevermore. Jesus is always who we've needed for our souls. Because what he provides is so much better. And guys, he even cares about the little things too. This is a little thing and compared to like salvation, like eternal destiny stuff. Oh, he made some wine. He cares about the little things because he is the perfect groom. And so I'm just going to say this real quick. Maybe, just maybe, 
The problems in your marriage aren't exactly with your spouse. They might be with the expectations that you have on them. You tracking with me? Maybe they're with the weight of the expectations that you're putting on your spouse to be for you what only Jesus can be for you. And goodness, can you imagine how beautiful a marriage would be? How, how freed up your spouse would be when they're, the, the, the weight of your expectations aren't on them anymore, they're on Jesus? Goodness, they'll be free. As the whole point of marriage, the whole point of wedding, of one fleshness between a husband and a wife, ultimately is to point us to the one who can ultimately provide all our soul's need for joy and satisfaction in life. And that's Jesus. And so in this text, we see three main ways Jesus reveals his glory. The first is that he is really the obedient son, but not to Mary, to his heavenly father. We see, secondly, that he is the ultimate purifier of his people. We don't have to go to a well. We don't have to go get washed in water. We just come to Jesus and he makes us new. We also see that Jesus is this all-providing bridegroom for his bride. Can you see how much better this wine is that Jesus offers? It is so much better. Better. Can you say so much better? One, two, three. So much better. When I, do, when, I, when I go like that, say it. One, two, three. So much better. Guys, obedience to God's word tastes. So much better. It's so much better than obeying and indulging every whim and desire in our hearts when we make ourselves our own gods. Not only that, but allowing Jesus to purify us from the inside out through his finished work is than trying to clean up our outward appearances and maintain our images. Not only that, but trusting in Jesus to be all our souls needs for him to be and putting our current or future spouse in their right place is than making the ones that you love suffer so much under the weight of your harsh and impossible expectations. Guys, Jesus is offering the better wine. Are you going to drink him in today? Because it is so much better. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.